for allied rivals. All roads lead to Rome. And eternal glory. Welcome to the Ryder Cup Radicals, a.k.a. the Rough Riders, a.k.a. Three Handsome Idiots Talking Golf. This is the third episode of our Ryder Cup preview series, and somehow we haven't been fired yet. Uh, meaning people are digging what we're doing, or no one's listening, and nothing in between. Uh, I am joined by the Rooster, Luke Cardinan, and Sleepy Shane Ryan. I'm your host, Joel Beal. Boys, let's get right into it. Uh, we are less than two months away from Rome. PGA Tour playoffs are underway. Players are running out of time to make their case, and in some cases, players have run out of time. Shane, you were at last week's regular season finale at the Wyndham Championship, so let's start off with the obvious question. What is your favorite Spaghetti Western and why? That would be, of course, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, just a, a classic. What's the director's name? I can't. He's, it's slipping my mind. Uh, oh. Uh, come on. It, it, he's famous, right? Uh, uh, oh, shoot. Now, uh, yeah, now I'm blanking, too. Hold on, I'm looking it up real quick. Uh, this is actually really just a rolling Sergio Leone, Sergio Leone, which is a great segue to Sergio Garcia. No, uh, yeah, 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 I was at uh, I was at Wyndham Saturday and Sunday, which you know I'm not you know the Wyndham is a long-standing proud tournament, not necessarily always like the most intriguing to cover. Sundays are usually fun because you have all the bubble watch, but even this year that's been reduced a little bit because they're pushing the fall series. So my my focus was firmly on Ryder Cup. I, I said, I can't let the Sambuca boys down. Talked to Luke Donald. I kept close track of Justin Thomas. Uh, I tried to implant a tracker on Justin Thomas. Got in a little trouble for that. Uh, but no, it was cool, man. I mean, Justin Thomas's run on Sunday was awesome. And, uh, you know, as I wrote this week for Digest, there were seven guys there who are, I would call, Ryder Cup hopefuls, at least. So three from America uh, and four from Europe. And it was just, yeah, I mean, it was interesting tracking them. I think we learned a little bit. Um, more than we had any right to expect for a week when the DP World Tour is off and most of the best players aren't playing. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'll give you the inside dope, man, whatever you want. You want the inside dope on Thomas? I got you. You want it on Shane Lowry? Let's go. Well, let's start with Thomas because, Shane, the last time we talked, you were out on G- JT being on the U.S. team. It seems like you're back in. What kind of spurred the turnaround for you? Or did you just realize you were being a big dum-dum? Yeah, I th- <laughs> it's funny because I've written two pieces since we last did it, and both of them I've, I've said JT is on the team. So it is, like, vaguely embarrassing to think there was a time when I didn't. But to be fair, like, when he's shooting 80s, like, if he, if he went and shot 80-80 at Wyndham, it would be a problem. But, yeah, I'm firmly back, I think, in reality, which is that, yeah, I sound like a broken record because I keep saying it and writing it, but JT is 16-5-3 in his Ryder Cup and President's Cup career. It's not – you know, it's not just like the best of his generation. It's phenomenal, like compared across history or whatever. He's your best guy. He's your Ian Poulter. And if he's playing even decently, you know, the goal is to win. And I think this guy is a gamer. The people love him. And I also think it's interesting with JT that in my mind, he's somebody who's really good at making friends with like the right people. You know, like he's best buddies with Tiger. And then I was laughing at the Open Championship. I didn't realize this, but Zach Johnson was asked about him. And he's like, oh, yeah, we're roommates on the road. Like, we sometimes stay together. And I was like, of course you are. Like, of course JT's roommates with Zach Johnson. So, like, on a practical level, like, not only do I think he deserves to be on the team, on a practical level, I think he's going to be because he's, like, connected. He's got a great record. Everything for me screams, like, JT's pretty much automatic at this point. 
Luke, you've been kind of right down the middle on JT. Where do you stand now? Uh, I mean, he as as great of a run that was, he oddly ultimately is out of the playoffs. Um, did that kind of kill his chances, or for where are you at with JT in terms of making the team? So I kind of think that every good Ryder Cup player, and by that I just mean players who have played well in Ryder Cups in the past on both sides, they always get one free hit. You know, their, their form's always going to take a dip and they're always going to get one benefit of the doubt pick. Keegan got it. Poulter kept getting them because he kept using them, playing well, and then kept getting another pick. And I think this is what JT's year is going to be. He's clearly not playing very well, clearly not hitting the shots, really, that he's capable of hitting and that he has in the past. But he's only 14th on the standings you know i think that's is somewhat underreported in many ways right true, true. <laughs> there are 12 players on the team and jt is playing so poorly this year by his own standards by his own admission and he's still 14 right so he's still right in the mix and so i think that it, it's really hard for me to see zach johnson not just giving him one of those benefit of the doubt picks that said if he doesn't play well when you get one of those picks that's when you become like a scapegoat during these things we see it all the time too that's the flip side of this narrative you know webb simpson like lobbies tom watson to put him on the team because uh well, i don't even know if he's the best example because i don't i don't really remember his Ryder cup record no no you're 100 right luke that was like he not only did he have a bad record that year but he he hit the first tee shot of the Ryder cup about what 80 yards straight up in the air like, <laughs> no, I, I think that's like the foremost example of what you're talking about yeah, and you know, like we saw Westwood last time too at the, uh, at the last Ryder Cup, where ah, you know, he's a pretty good player. Like, let's see how it goes, and and so it, it's it's a bit of a hit or miss, like boom or bust idea, really, for someone like uh, someone like Justin Thomas. But I think there's no way he's not getting on the team. Is a long-winded way of answering your question. One more thing I would say, Joel and and Luke, is that the thing that's going to be interesting to watch is we might be underrating how much time is left between now and the picks with no JT. So what I mean by that is let's say Sam Burns, Keegan, uh, you know, Morikawa and Ricky all have tremendous playoffs. It is, I still think JT makes a team, but it is going to put pressure on, on like Zach Johnson because JT's not there. Right. So it's going to be like that, that would have to be a perfect storm. And so, I mean, it's, you know, it doesn't, you know, Sam Burns could miss a cut or, well, I guess he can't miss a cut, but you know what I mean? He could play poorly and all that, and it'd be fine. But there is that element there. And the other thing I wanted to mention to Luke's point is that because of the live PGA Tour divide, and maybe I'm getting too far into like how important Twitter discourse is, but I can't you just imagine JT making the team and then playing poorly and them just going off, being like, you should have had Bryson here, you should have had DJ or whatever. Like, like it's That almost would be accentuated this year uh, in terms of the discourse because of how – awful and angry everything is uh in all the areas that we talk about i i think that's certainly a a, a good point i out of the two though i think i would lean toward the former i think his biggest jt's biggest worry the minefield he has to traverse is basically the idea that someone like Finau, someone like burns somebody like even denny mccarthy or a guy we're not even talking about right now let's say wins this week and then finishes like top five next week all of a sudden that that's a spot right now we aren't conferring to somebody um, I'm just thinking about 2018. Bryson was that guy when he won the first two events. You know, he was in consideration, but I don't think anyone had him as a definite on the team. And then, you know, two weeks later, he's on. So 
I think that's going to be the toughest part. It'll be interesting to see if Thomas tries to play elsewhere the next month um, to kind of try to prove his mettle that he's trying to work it rather than just give it the spots conferred to him. Um, it also kind of my worry with picking Thomas is after 2014, there was just this idea of the Ryder Cup had become this old boys network. And Thomas, even though he's 30, is, as you mentioned, Shane, he is about as connected as you can get in the game. Is picking Thomas over someone who might be a little bit more formidable or might have a little bit better credentials this year, is that a sign that, man, at the end of the day, this is all about just who you know? Um, mm-hmm. Whether that's true or not, the optics are there. I do wonder how much they're going to play into it. Uh, but, Shane, you did mention Bryson a couple times. Clearly, the big news last week was Bryson shooting a 58 at Live Golf event at the Greenbrier. Uh, on his way to a win. It was his first win in more than two years, but the former U.S. Open winner has been playing pretty well over the last two months. Um, LKD, is Bryson on the Ryder Cup team a real possibility we should be entertaining? I don't think it's a real possibility, but it really should be a real possibility. I mean, he's objectively playing very well. This is also the underlying problem with golf in its current structure right that we have no real frame of context for how well or how good a guy like bryson is right now relative to his peers he's played well at the he played well at the pga right like we kind of forget about that because it feels so long ago but he played really well at the pga um showed up again uh at the u.s open relatively speaking and you know he's playing great golf on live and he really should be in the conversation, especially when you're starting to look down the bottom half of this U.S. team. You know, I, I agree with you that the doom <laughs> scenario for Justin Thomas and really Colin Morikawa, I put in this bucket too, is some combination of Cameron Young, Keegan Bradley, Denny McCarthy playing really well in the playoffs, right? But it, it's funny that we're talking about a guy like Denny McCarthy as a real possibility to make the team, but yet Bryson... It's been very recent, this flurry up of conversation about, well, should he make the team? It's also worth noting that Bryson was Scotty Scheffler's partner last time around, and they played really well together. I mean, Bryson didn't just win his singles match. He went unbeaten with Scotty Scheffler in, I think, two in two or three matches. You're going to have to correct me on that. But, they played, yeah, uh, they played two. Yep. Yeah, so they played two, and they were unbeaten in both of them, and then Bryson went on and won his singles. You know, it's he's kind of a, I guess he's kind of a tricky guy to pair with, but when you're talking about the guy who he plays best with is the best player in golf, potentially, it's um, it's it's definitely warrants a, a conversation over a guy when you're starting to look at, oh, Justin Thomas, can he get something going? Sam Burns isn't playing that sharp either. Uh, there are all these lingering questions, and then you have a guy sitting over there in, in live field playing really well um so i think he should warrant some consideration was that a left field pun it was yeah <laughs> i like that I, I like that. <laughs> i wasn't gonna i wasn't gonna miss that i will say i just want to say <laughs> very good very good sir uh, <laughs> Bravo. Italian chef's kiss uh, in honor of rome no i, I sorry I, can, I, can i just say that one boss move that, or one awesome thing i would love to see jt do that i don't think he should just go pitch up in europe you should just start playing DP World Tour events. Stop playing the Irish Open. Stop playing the Czech Masters. The Czech Masters. <laughs> I think I think you knock some wins. Definitely knock some good finishes. And I think that would be an absolute seal the deal. Luke. Uh, ticket on his team luke i asked him about that but unfortunately i had to ask him like when he like for saturday right so he still had a chance of making the playoffs but he wouldn't rule it out i was like justin like would you do something crazy like go to europe and he just like stared for a second and he's like 
I'm going to try to make the playoffs tomorrow. But he didn't He didn't say no. And he said kind of like a we'll see type thing. I, I agree with you. I, can you imagine like a JT? Like, screw it. I love the Ryder Cup so much. I'm going out to Europe to play to show how much I love it. Y'all can do what you want. But, like, this is going to be me. Um, it would be so good. With Bryson, the, the thing I want to bring up, um, I agree with you that it's probably not realistic. But it, the reason it's not realistic might be, like, 50% political reasons, which – going back to what Joel said, that might not be right, but he had a tremendous Ryder cup at whistling Straits, And I, I think along with pairing with Scheffler, when he drove the green uh, on one against Sergio on I'm Sunday, so that, that was like Ryder cup over. I mean, what a moment that was. Uh, it it kind of showed that this is not going to be Medina. Right. So he was great, but the comparison I want to bring up is 2018 because, you know, Joel already mentioned he, the same situation where he got hot late Um and, you know, you basically forced Jim Furyk to take him. And then he went to a course that, unlike Whistling Straits, was not like a very Bryson course, you know, in Paris. And that's what he's going to be facing again. He didn't play well in 2018. Now, to be fair, he was paired with Tiger and Phil in the only two pairs matches he played. And those guys were awful. So it wasn't all Bryson. But then he lost to Henrik Norin. Uh, I'm sorry, Alex Norin in, uh, in singles. And, you know, it was kind of a bad Ryder Cup for Bryson. And it was on a course much like we're going to see in Marco Simone in Rome. So I just want to throw that out there that it, I think his case would be a lot better if America were hosting and you're, you know, playing at Hazeltine or, or whistling straights or a place like that. Then of course there's team fit, which is a whole other can of worms that probably makes it impossible for him to make the team. The only thing I'd say to that is that Bryson's a very different player than, than, he, than he was previously. Right. Like, and that's the funny thing about Bryson's game. His game goes through all these different, Peaks and, peaks and valleys but you know when he pitched up at the 2018 Ryder Cup he was golf machine Bryson right just trying to hit every shot dead straight wasn't that long a hitter wasn't that powerful and then he bulked up and became the I think top tier level talent that Bryson is today so um, that just kind of upgraded his game overall and we have seen him play well at weird courses too like I don't think that necessarily rules out different courses just because he is a longer hitter now. I think he's just an overall better player than his first Ryder Cup. So that's the only counter I, I, I would I would say to that. You're not just picking a. It's not just a course fit situation. Yep. It's a he's a better player now, like objectively. No doubt, no doubt. It's interesting when when I saw the Bryson the Ryder Cup questions popping up on Sunday. It, it kind of reminded me of like, can we just enjoy the moment? The guy shot 58. Why do we have to make it about something else? Uh, this, this is kind of like the bane of having a 24-hour news cycle everything has to mean something greater than what it is uh, and yet you if you start breaking the numbers down especially if you go to data golf which does take out some of the bias it's it's the best really barometer we have in this divided game right now of what like bryson's been playing like i think he's right at 24th in strokes gains of the past three months so it's not like he's been i mean he has been good outside of just uh you know the pga championship and, and last week at greenbrier uh, I think the the counters, as you mentioned, there is some political, not even just the lift stuff, just with possible team fit and chemistry. There's also the idea that, in, I mean, this was his first one in two years. It wasn't like he's been racking up W's on live. In fact, he's been playing, he was playing pretty bad at live until I believe Sp the Spain event. Um, so the track record is not quite there. I'm with you, Luke, that he is a different player than he was in 2018. I still don't think though, Rome is going to fit his game as well as, let's say, Worcestering Straits. Um, but the fact that he even made this a argument or is making this an argument, I think is pretty indicative. And, man, if he if he does something special here and lives last couple of events, it will be interesting to see 
how much pressure is put on Zach Johnson because there's going to be at least one live guy, right? I think we all assume it's going to be Brooks. But I think there is going to be some pressure to bring somebody in, especially with this new unification that's in the process of, of being completed, to totally exclude these guys, at least from the American team. I think it's just going to be a really bad look and also just a bad strategy on Johnson's part. So credit to Bryson for at least making this all of a sudden something we talk about. Um, but, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out here in the next couple of weeks. Um, but we've been talking a lot about the Americans. We have to jump to the other side of the pond. Luke. Days after the Open Championship, you were waving the European flag, believing Team Europe had already sealed another victory on home turf. Uh, all of a sudden, though, the back end is looking a little shaky. Shane Lowry, someone who seemed like a top six pick throughout the past year, failed to make the FedEx Cup playoffs. Justin Rose has missed his last three cuts in the PGA Tour. That third European points spot is still looking kind of like a, a possible hole. Honestly, even like the top three or four players on the European team haven't been playing their best this past month or so. Are you still as confident now as you were when we left Royal Liverpool? I mean, considering we just spent the first bit of the podcast talking about the tyranny of the downward spiral that the U.S. team is in, I'm feeling more confident than I did last <laughs> week. To be of course. Of course. I mean, I, I, I do think, generally speaking, we place way too much emphasis on, on form for right the cups i mean like sure there is an element of this that matters but i'm not sure we've even entered the period in which we should be starting to think about form really at all we're more than a month away from the start of the Ryder cup things change so quickly in golf i think you're just trying to look for underlying quality there um the i do get a little concerned i guess about that third automatic european point spot i mean I think it's been an open secret for a while, especially among European Ryder Cup fans, that it would be nice to just unify the qualifying process instead of doing this manhandle, you know, world point list, European point list. Because I think that's probably the easiest way of getting your best players automatically qualified. That said, I guess I generally think there's plenty, there's plenty of time left. There's also a bit of a European swing coming up. Guys like Shane Lowry are going to go pitch up in the Irish Open and all that kind of stuff that is going to... To, to make a difference and ultimately i just think the structure of the european team is different now it used to very much be a uh how strong is the bottom of the order type because we didn't have the stars like you guys did frankly we didn't have the tigers and the fills and this and that but right now we do have that between ram mcroy and hovland um and you could even throw like a plus one in there too whether it's like a fleetwood type or something we do have a really strong top of the order so now it's just about helping those guys play their best be it with playing partners or whatever so i'm not fretting about the 11th ranked guy in on our team right now i i just don't think that's how our team is structured anymore it's always so funny too with europe where okay you could have a guy like <clears throat> stephen gallagher right in, in 2014 who in a great Ryder Cup for Europe, was kind of, like, overwhelmed. Like, the stage was too big. He might have had some weird stuff leading up, and he looked bad. But then, just as easily as that, you could have Victor Dubuisson or Jamie Donaldson that year, who are rookies and come out and are awesome. And so it's like, I'm with you, Luke. I mean, if I were Luke Donald and McGinley and, you know, Olathobel and all the guys choosing this stuff, Eduardo Molinari, he's their stats king, I'd be looking at they're fire. You know what I mean? Like I would almost be like reducing it. I'd become like Joe Morgan being like, does he have some dog in him? But that's all you have to know. I mean, because like it's match play is not form based. You know, I think of all the time Thomas Bjorn's captain's picks and I was probably almost definitely on record as saying they were bad. 
when he picked like Sergio Stenzi. He you know pull, he went veterans who weren't on form, but his stat guys were telling him kind of look. You, you, I think the phrase you used was looking for underlying form. They were kind of like Sergio's not as bad as he seems because of the stat. You know, like, they kind of like gave him the green light to do it, and these guys dominated right. Whereas Furek went completely on form. Tiger won. What did he, he won the whole playoffs that year or the tour championship, right? Championship. Yeah. And then Bryson won the two playoff events. Like he went purely on form and it didn't work out. So I, yeah, I like what you said about, about form being a little bit overrated again. You know, you don't want a guy shooting eighties coming into it, but I, I think that argument also going back to JT makes it even better for him. But um, you know, I talked to uh, go ahead, Luke. Sorry. No, yeah, I think you're spot on. And I think this goes for both sides. So, I mean, I think one of the dirty secrets about P-Dutal stats, really, is that the margins are so impossibly thin that sometimes we get so bogged down in certain numbers when really it's you're talking about one part during one round that, that can really make a difference in how your resume that season looks. I mean, Will Zalatoris is in many ways a fantastic example. His his putting. I know this isn't a Ryder Cup thing, but you know we always talk about him being a terrible short-range putter and this and that, strokes gained, putting. Oh my gosh! Really, what that amounts to is one more missed inside ten feet every seven and a half rounds. That's how thin the margins are on the PGA Tour statistically, and yet it can completely control the narrative. So, I, I think we got to park those in certain respects, especially when we're more than a month, month and a half out. I um I talked with Luke Donald, uh, me and Adam Shupak kind of pulled him aside on Saturday, and I thought the interesting thing he there are two interesting things he said. The first was that he's like in his mind there's a lot of spots open, which I think is evident. Like if you're looking at it from our perspective, it's like it doesn't seem like anybody's locked up those last four spots yet. Um, and so he kind of, but he said that he's like in my mind there's a lot left to play for. Thought that was interesting. Um, which is interesting also in our form discussion where, you know, form probably is going to play a role in him because when you're deciding between six different rookies, almost what else do you have, right? You kind of have to go on what you're, what you've seen. Um, the other thing he said was he talked about veteran leadership and, you know, I think it was Shupak that asked him, you know, you're gonna have a lot of young guys. He's like, well, we do have Rory's played however many and Rom's played however many. Um, but he also said, I'm looking at guys who have other, who have experience also. So that made me think Lowry, Alex Noren. Alex Noren's the big question mark to me. I'm dying to know if uh, Alex Noren is going to make the Ryder Cup team. But yeah, so he talked about those guys where I think when push comes to shove, they're going to have some appeal. The guys who have played before, even if they're not peak right now, like Lowry had a kind of a mediocre week. He made the cup, but he wasn't that great, right? Um, but I think those guys, Noren, same thing. Noren was one shot better at the Wyndham. I still think those guys are like, neither one of them made the playoffs. I still think they're kind of on the inside of the bubble right now. Quick, yeah, I, I think, think so. Before I let it go, uh, I, I'm wearing a Cincinnati red shirt. I'm not going to take any Joe Morgan slander. So I just want to put that out there. You might want to roll that back. Uh, but yeah, really interesting that you mentioned those spots, or Donald mentioned those spots are still open. Uh, so I guess that kind of transitions my Is there any big names we are currently slotting in right now who you think are in danger of missing the team for Team Europe? For me, big names, I mean, look, I, I think all the big names that you can think of are basically in. Like, I, you know, obviously the top of the line guys, you know, Rory and Rom and, and that. But I think Fitzpatrick, I think Tyrrell Hatton, I think um, Fleetwood are obviously in. I think Justin Rose is close to obviously in for me. I, I Actually, I'm curious for Luke's take on that one because he's another one where I'm like, 
I, I think he's inside the bubble no matter what, but is he a hundred percent? I think he might be getting close. And beyond that, you know, what are the big names, right? I mean, Oh, Victor Hoblin of course is in. Um, and then, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you consider like Lowry uh, as a last big name where maybe there's a question mark there, but other than Lowry and Rose, I, I've got the big name. I don't think there's anybody going to slip out personally. Yeah, Shane, I do think Justin Rose is probably the best shout as a guy who is currently in and maybe assumed to be in, but has the best chance of dropping out. Uh, really, because it's the same dynamic that's in play on the US side that's in play on the European side, right? I mean, the playoffs are here this week and there's a bunch of European contenders in the field. I mean, Thomas Detry, Seamus Power, Aaron Rye, they could all do something in these playoffs. They could all start playing well, start booking booking their tickets to the to the following playoff tournaments and make life really awkward for a guy like Justin Rose. So he's probably the most obvious name. I, I'm not buying the I think Shane Lowry, just because he played quite well, relatively speaking, at the last Ryder Cup, close with Rory, maybe an obvious fit for pairings there. Um, I, I think he's probably going to find himself more likely in than not. I think Justin Rose, who played his best goal for the start of the season, he's in a slightly more precarious position, relatively speaking, and um, sort of needs to depend on a combination of him, both him playing well and other guys, specifically certain guys, not playing too well. I, I think Rose is a guy I circled as well that, I think is maybe in a little bit more precarious spot than than we think. I hate to make the direct correlation with Bryson because it's it's not apples to apples, but it was kind of interesting in 2021. It didn't seem like Rose was anywhere close to making the team. And when you would kind of talk to people around Europe, it was, I don't want to say chemistry issues, but he maybe wasn't the best locker room fit either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I think that standing has changed a little bit um, over the past two years, but I don't think he's also a guy that other players are we are vouching for, if that makes sense. You know, um, I think also I'd maybe. Yeah, it's a really good point. I'd also maybe throw someone in like Robert McIntyre in there, too. I know he's qualifying automatically right now, courtesy of his good Scottish Open play. But he's just, uh, you know, he's not got a big cushion there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Very easy for a guy like Maronk or even Fleetwood or maybe a Hogarth to sneak in there in his place with with a good finish or two. And all of a sudden, because of the way the European points structure is, if he's out of that category, then suddenly he's going to have to rely on a captain pick. And there's going to be a whole contingent of guys who, who would rather take um, any number of, of other, who would take a swing on any number of other guys too. So um, he's another name outside of, uh, outside of Rose I'd probably sort of circle. I noticed you didn't mention the person who's closest to overtaking him on the European list, Luke which may not be a real person, Yannick Paul, I think. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to keep this to actual real people, not fictional actual humans, Yeah, but I'm actually curious. I want to follow up on that with the, with the McIntyre fit. Do you think it's a chemistry thing where if he slipped out, people wouldn't be anxious to have him or just a competitive thing? Like there's so many vying for that spot. Well, I think like it or not, what, you know, because we have a limited sample size in terms of trying to justify your own picks, your own downside risk, you really, uh, it's okay to take a swing on a guy who you think is something special, the kind of Ludwig argument, right? Ah, oh, this guy might be great, and he's just young. Let's take a swing on him. That's fairly easy to justify. But when you're, 
when you're a guy who's never played in a Ryder Cup before, hasn't showed a bunch of form, maybe just flurried up once or twice, and that's gained you a bunch of points, um, that's sometimes a bit hard to justify a pick for a guy because you don't have a sustained sort of resume of form. What you have is a few good finishes mm. and you know, the argument that you got really close. I mean, we saw Sepp Straka victim of this. I think it's assumed that he's in now, but up until his good finish at the Open, even after his win, a lot of people were saying, wow, he's inconsistent. Sure, he showed up at the PGA and he won the John Deere, but he hasn't really done much outside of that. He doesn't have much experience outside of that. So you just start getting hit with those arguments when you're a guy who hasn't had a chance to prove yourself in a Ryder Cup itself and doesn't have a big body of consistent form leading or consistent finishes leading up to it. Um, the, you, it just becomes a, a tricky proposition to have to make your case for, for a captain's pick. You're almost, it's almost like in many ways, you're so close to making it automatically that you start getting hit with the with, with that argument, the kind of Keegan Bradley argument, right? Yeah, you better you better be in there. You better be in there because if you're not, yeah, 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 exactly. Like you were so close, but you know the, your your good finishes were kind of concentrated to a handful of events, and it just it starts getting a little awkward. Whereas in some ways, you'd prefer to just be a little further outside the bubble and just say, "Hey, take a flyer on me, coach. I, I can do it." Yeah, it's it's kind of similar in a way of how we've dissected Rory McIlroy's major finishes the past two years, right? Like, in a weird way, sometimes, like, John, we don't – when John Rahm finishes T22, we don't knock him. But when Rory finishes T6, we go, what's going on with this guy? <laughs> in a weird way, I think that there's a, a similar cadence to that, to that argument. Um, kind of staying in that same vein, uh, Shane, we'll start with you. Who are a couple of guys you're interested on either side these next three <laughs> weeks to really make a final push for the team? I think I don't watch much European tour golf, but I think I'm going to be riveted by the Czech Masters, the Irish Open, and the other the other one's like the Northern Ireland something or other, uh, I, whatever the other one is. Um, I, I think those are going to be fascinating this this time. And I don't even have one guy that I can pinpoint because I think it's so wide open on the European side. Now, in the I'd say the same exact thing about the U.S. side, where the playoffs are going to be really, really good. Starting, you know, we're recording on Wednesday, starting tomorrow. Um, with, I mean, you could go down the list, but I, if I had to pick one guy, you know, what I think I'm most interested in right now is Colin Morikawa because we've we've talked about it before. I think he really worked quite hard to be on form um, for the Whistling Straits Ryder Cup when he wasn't necessarily playing his best golf. I think the Ryder Cup is something he really enjoys, and I, I'm going to be interested to see what he can muster. Um, Sam Burns is a guy that really intrigues me because Sam Burns was in the Wyndham this past week, and he did well. He finished, I think, T14 or something. Here's a guy who won the WGC match play, right? And the list – hold on. I, I think this is worth me just Googling this real quick because the list of people that he beat in the WGC match play is pretty interesting. Obviously, he beat Cam Young in the um, – he beat Cam Young in the final. He beats Adam Hadwin, Adam Scott, and Seamus Power in the group stages. Okay, whatever. Not bad, but not great. Beats Patrick Cantley, Mackenzie Hughes, Scotty Scheffler in 21 holes, and Cam Young in the final. And, you know, look back to Whistling Straits. Um, Scotty Scheffler, his great run in the, uh, in the WGC match play that year. It was the year before he won. I think it was the year he lost to Horschel. But he beat Rom. He beat Poulter. Steve Stricker was really impressed by that. 
And I have to wonder if Zach Johnson's got that in his mind where, you know, we're not really talking about Sam Burns. And I think we should be more. And I think if, you know, the Wyndham is an indication that he's about to go on a playoff run, Sam Burns has got to be so intriguing. He didn't have a good President's Cup, but he's got to be so intriguing with that match play win. Yeah, it's it's funny, too. That is like a very reasonable situation that could occur where, you know, Cameron Young, Sam Burns, Denny McCarthy uh, and Keegan Bradley all go on some or get hot during the playoffs and they all vault themselves inside the top 12. And then all of a sudden it's it's maybe more it's it's two of. Morikawa, Fowler, and JT, who are on the outside looking in. I mean, that's a very reasonable thing that could happen, especially if Justin Thomas isn't playing. And even if you assume that he's just going to be on the team because of past glories, it, it could just – there's no way around the sort of math of that situation that, that could occur. So, yeah, it's Sam Burns probably has the best chance of going on a, on a run, and it would be really interesting if it does. So – I agree with those points. The the one thing I would add, and this is coming from a few conversations I had earlier in the week, I think we are all guilty of the extent to our eyes stick around that 8 to 13 range without realizing mm-hmm. there's still so many good guys on both sides when you even get outside the 20s. Like someone like JT Poston, as crazy as that sounds, has finished T7 or better in four of his last five starts. This is someone who I have not heard a single name since, and then all of a sudden, though, if he – Let's just say he wins an event this week or next week. Those that pass all of a sudden gets amplified. And wait a minute, are we going to pass on this guy if 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 he was doing this for Europe? He'd, we'd think he's a shoo in. Um, we're also maybe negating someone like Sahith Thagala, who has missed a couple cuts, but was one of the best players the first half of the season. I know he hasn't been on a U.S. team before. He, he's only a, a sophomore on tour, but can someone like that, if they get hot, make a run? This the whole reason they've kind of pushed these roster cuts back is that Billy Horschel rule, right? How we want to account for someone getting hot. So I think this becomes really interesting. If someone we aren't considering makes a push, that's when those Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa conversations get really interesting because how much weight do we put on? We want to, you, I understand we've talked a couple times about not putting too much weight on recent form, but you also totally can't discount it either. Um, and I yeah. just think- Tony, Tony Finau, he could very easily 20, win this yeah. week. Yeah. You know, he, he's won playoff events before. He, <laughs> that, that's a classic example of a guy who could just, you know, I know Zach John says, I want my life to be hard. I want these decisions to be difficult. But you don't really want them to be that difficult. <laughs> you kind of you want, yeah, you exactly. want them relatively settled just because when you start making calls, and especially when you start skipping over guys who were closer to qualifying in lieu of other guys, it just sets you up to get to get slammed if if it doesn't pay off we see it all the time in every other sport and it happens all the time in Ryder cups too so yeah i think it's a really good point joel i think um yeah i I think it is like the the bullet point of that would be form doesn't matter that much in the Ryder cup but you you ignore form you ignore torrid form at your own detriment i i think looking at the u.s standings i put the cutoff at 14 which is justin thomas below that I don't know if you guys agree with this. Below that, I think you got to win the playoff event. I don't think playing well is enough, with the possible exception of Tony Finau, like if he has like three third place finishes or something. But I think below, you're talking about Denny McCarthy, you know, Kitayama, English, Finau, all the way down to Henley, Thagala, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I think at that point, anything short of a win probably isn't enough in the next three weeks. Is that is that making sense? 
I would even go as far as multiple wins probably need to happen to really force the hand a little bit. If you're if you're someone outside that Finau group, um, to really, like, really, I I guess I disagree with you guys. There's always a trendy name that pops up who plays well, like the like the Billy Horschel example that you just highlighted. There's I'm not saying they'll get in, but it always starts warranting a conversation. If Kurt Kitayama finishes, you know, wins a playoff event and then pops up in another. It's it, and Colin Morikawa didn't do much. I'm not saying he gets in over Morikawa, but it, it just flurries up a bit of a conversation. There's always going to be that crowd on golf Twitter who says, Oh, what about Kurt Kitayama? Or, you know, what if Bryson wins again this week at John Bedminster? I, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of conversations to be had. Yeah, so I guess I disagree slightly. So you're disagreeing with the idea that it has to be multiple wins, but not necessarily that they got to have one. Like to me, Kurt Kitayama finishes 5-5-5 five, five, five in the three playoff events. Probably, for me, that's not enough, I don't think, at this point. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is that I agree a win is much better, but I think a, a, a few good finishes, you know, yeah. I think that's enough to vault them into a pretty serious conversation about picks, though I don't think it'll get them over the line. I guess that's what I think. Makes sense. No, I think the conversation said that. I, I guess that I just look at it as, is it the person I keep thinking about is Ryan Moore on that 2016 team. Okay, that really long push. Now, Grant, I think that was almost a bit of an overreaction to the Horschel situation in 2014. But you're right. There, there's really, really not many guys who have kind of come out of nowhere and at the end to really make a final push. But it's, it's part of the conversation to act like it's not, I think, is not being true to the situation. Um, guys, to wrap it up, I did want to ask you, we all love the Ryder Cup. Uh, but we are riders, and being riders means being inherently critical of things. So, throwing a little bit of a curveball at you, if you had to change one thing about the Ryder Cup each, what would it be? Shane, we'll start with you. Wow. Um, how do you change the perfect event? <laughs> how do you how do you gild the lily? Uh, it's a great question. Um, here's one thing that I would feel pretty confident in changing right now. And this is tough. This is a tough one, but I think I would give the course setup to a neutral body at this point. And the reason I say that we, I think maybe we talked about it on a previous episode, but there are so many home blowouts now that other than the, the freaky Medina ending since 2008, the home team has won every time. And other than 2010, it's been a blowout every time, 2010 and 2012. So you're looking at right. Glen Eagles, Hazeltine, um, Paris, Whistling Straits. I don't think it's going to happen again this year, but that's four straight. I mean, that's a decade of home blowouts. And when, when I think back to what I consider the golden age of the Ryder Cup, starting in 1983 and probably ending in Brookline, uh, so 83 to 99, I mean, every year it was 14 and a half to 13 and a half. And that's one thing that we've really missed since Medina is being able to see a really tight, excellent Sunday finish. And I think the stats are so good now and the people who set the courses up are so smart and are operating with so much data about their team that it really is a massive advantage when you combine it with the home field advantage of the crowds which is the i think the overwhelming biggest thing having a million people cheering for you can't you're not going to undo that right and i wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to put it on a neutral venue that's crazy but i do think you would want a neutral body governing the course and so that's probably the one change i would make in an event that is otherwise past criticism luke yeah, um, I would, well, I guess two two things. I think on the European side, I really dislike the 
European points, world points, like way they pick the team. I mean, I know that the DP World Tour has a stake in this, so they want they want to try to make it seem important, but it really does make things awkward. And we're seeing it starting to get watered down with each successive loss now, right? Because it, I, I just think it should be a, you should go off something akin to world rankings, effectively. Like I just, I would just scrap it. I would scrap the Europeans points. I would just do it on the world's point list. And when you look down the order there, you see that that's where the, the strongest players are sort of in more of a meritocratic order. So that's definitely what I would do on the US side. Uh, excuse me, on the European side. On the US side, uh, it's also a qualifying thing, but I really don't like this. Uh, I, I don't like the fact that Justin Thomas won the PGA Championship this year, and he's now on the outside looking in two months ahead of the tournament, just because the way they've weighted Ryder Cup year stuff in favor of, uh, in favor of other stuff. Uh, excuse me, the previous year. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, someone like Max Homer played really well at the start of the season and he's effectively locked into this team, right? He was in automatic sports already. He's been seventh right now. He's been sort of middling ever since, but because he played well during a Ryder Cup year, six to seven months before the tournament itself, he's locked in. That's not a fair reflection of hot form coming into the Ryder Cup. A fair reflection of hot form is what happens starting now, <laughs> really, like the month yeah. leading up. So I think that they just, it's too crude a system to be able to say, oh, well, we're trying to reward form. So last year doesn't matter. And the entirety of this year does matter. When in reality, form is so fleeting that it needs to be condensed to the latter part of the season. And Justin Thomas's like PGA Championship victory in good season last season is actually a better reflection of the overall player that he is. That's that's really interesting. It's uh, it almost it sounds like you, you could go from that to advocating a OWGR type system where the waiting accelerates with time. So it's not just like you said, this crude cutoff where if you're in 2023, everything you do matters, including if you win in February. Um, yeah. 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 Exactly. Like, Oh, like it's that. double as important now. No, it's not. You yeah. know, this is, it's just yeah. a smaller sample size that you're saying is more important, but uh, yeah. it's not a fairer reflection of your literal ability. Those are good ones. I, uh, I, as I asked you guys that I realized I didn't really have one loaded. So, uh, <laughs> have faked it's because they are i think the first is this is a common complaint but it's been a complaint that's been going on for honestly since the since this thing has started but the the venues just need to be better for the reflection of how if this is supposed to be the one of the premier events in golf we have to up the game on the, the venues i understand adhering to spectators is the most important thing but there there are just so many good golf courses to be playing at you know to to be honest places that are second tier if not third tier courses i think it would just do so much more for the game to, to bring these things to, to venues uh that are the world's best the other one i was thinking of i i it's i'm talking on both sides of my mouth because i love one of the things i love about the Ryder cup is these discussions that we can have for months in advance i do wonder sometimes if we wait too much though into the strategy into what goes in part of me would like to see like a captain is not named. In fact, we're just going player only losses. And those last four or five picks are basically picked by the top two or three automatic qualifiers. Just embrace the chaos. There's not as much political campaigning going on and just kind of let it be a players run only thing. Uh, I know that's probably not practical. I know, again, it's very half baked, but 
part of me wonders would it would it kind of maybe solve itself if players would just have to pick their own pick their own team and what type of fallout what could that have and uh i just think i i'm i'm always for things that embrace chaos and i feel like leaning into that would be a f- at least a fun thing joel i don't hate you but i hate <laughs> that idea so much <laughs> I love the cap. The captain stuff is like by far my most favorite thing. You know, the, the strategy and the tactics and think of all the stories we wouldn't have, you know, like Tom Watson versus McGinley and the, and the Mickelson rebellion and Faldo in 08 against Azinger. You know, I just, I love that stuff, but I, I like where you're going. There's a, there definitely would introduce an element of chaos if that happens for sure. I, I definitely don't me wrong. I, I dig it too, especially it's something I think we're all sports fans here. It's something that we just don't have in golf outside of this tournament. The problem is I do wonder how much weight we put in. I know we brought this up on a previous podcast. I just remember going into Whistling Straits hearing so much about all the things Team Europe was doing to get ready. And then, like, come Wednesday, we find out, like, Harrington didn't know what, like, brand of balls his guys were playing. So it's like this is the most elementary thing that if you're – I don't want to say – you know, obviously there's a gearhead as a special, uh, you know, a a niche realm in golf. But, like, most people can – most – hard golf fans can tell you what golf ball these guys play. And the fact that Padraig Harrington didn't know that is like, it made me think, are we putting way too much weight into this? And do we maybe kind of retrofit these stories of, Oh, you know, like McGinley. Now, Grant, I think McGinley is a special case. He kind of, to me, him and Azinger are like the gold standards of what you want out of a captain. But I think sometimes we think that's how it applies to everybody. Right. Um, but, but Joel, I I would argue, you know, McGinley not he had to switch his pairings at the last second because of that. McGinley took fewer captains' picks when all his stats people, I guarantee you, were telling him to take more. And what you see Europe doing now, there's a few things along the way that contribute to the idea. Of like I, I I guess my argument is I love that because it's like it shows that like you know again Stricker and Davis Love and, and Zach Johnson they weren't making those mistakes. You know what I mean? And like. Harrington was not a great cap. Maybe there's nothing that could have changed that the U S was going to win at whistling straights, but those mistakes are like a fundamental part of like, I love that. Like the narrative, like, look how we mismanage, you know what I mean? And it, and it shows that there's like sort of a, a problem, an underlying problem. I, to me, I almost say like U S might've won anyway at whistling straights, but pottery Harrington's strategic mistakes and the things he overlooked made it impossible for Europe to pull off an upset. Um, but it, broader point being, I like that stuff. I, I think it's like it intrigues me, and it shows that like a, a firm leader and a, and a leader who's attentive to the even the smallest detail is actually a really important thing. Okay, so Shane, I not to plug your book shamelessly, but in 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 your book, the cup they couldn't lose. I really came away with an appreciation of the fact that, like on other sports, that it's not necessarily the literal tactics that make the difference. It's the man management aspect of this right Mm. there are certain pairings that thrive not because the analytics say they would or should but it's the the little differences the captains can make in terms of buying into a philosophy buying into an idea and being really motivated to go and prove it right because of it the pod system on the u.s side or mcginley's handling of mcdowell and de brisson is the best example on the other side i think those those always seem to be the uh, the difference maker one example, one really quick example I love, um, going back to McGinley, of course. Of course, I'm going back to McGinley. But his he made it a point to like know the agents, to know the caddies, to know the teams, and have these close relationships. And through that, Henrik Stenson, in the last session, uh, as good as he and Justin Rose played, he got the intel, not from Stenson, but from his people, that his back was aching and it might not be a good idea to play him, where, where Stenson would have said, I want to play. 
And that's just a great example of McGinley had these lines of information everywhere. And so he rested Stenson. And, you know, obviously they had that great um, Saturday afternoon session that fundamentally put the cup away. So it's little things like that. Like you said, like it, it's the man management. Yeah, sometimes the tactics work out. And sometimes you can be a brilliant tactician and your guys are going to play like crap and you can't do anything about it, right? Like Medina. Medina's a great example. Davis Love did a pretty good job. He may have made a mistake not loading the boat on Sunday, but even if, no matter what you do, you don't expect a 10-6 deficit to be overcome. That's just bad luck. But there are things that like are important to do. And, you know, with Harrington, you know, having to switch those partnerships because he didn't know the ball. I mean, that's like pretty close to egregious, I think. Do, do you feel we are guilty of always ascribing mismanagement to the losing team? Can you think of a situation or a captain, a losing captain in the past 10 years outside of or not even the past, the past whatever, two, two decades outside of love who you really can't pin the loss strictly on that person? It's tough. So where I would go with it is, especially in recent history, the home field advantage is really tough. So Furyk, I think, is somebody who had his hand forced on captain's picks in a really unlucky way. There's no yep. way you can't take Bryson, Tiger, Phil, right? Maybe Phil. Maybe you didn't have to take Phil. But he had it. And the, and the course setup was just awful for the Americans. The Europeans were locked and loaded. They ended up having really good captain's picks. But I don't think Furyk did a bad job at all, even though he got, you know, his butt kicked basically in Paris. So there's an example, you know, maybe Hazeltine was one that Darren Clark, I don't think Darren Clark was that great a captain, but maybe Hazeltine was one he was never going to win. Same with Harrington. You know, we're nitpicking things. Maybe you were never going to win whistling straights. Um, so there are examples of that. Uh, I'm trying to think like going yeah, back. I was going to say the same thing about Darren Clark. I agree. I don't think he was a transformative captain, but I don't even know if a transformative captain could have that just, Felt like one of those cups that the U.S. was due to win, was really ramped up to win. There was this whole narrative going into it about the U.S. players not caring as much about the Ryder Cup, which they really, really, really wanted to overturn. The crowd at Hazel team was just ripping. If you look at the captain's picks, Darren Clark made. He made some. He made basically a by the book good ones, right? It was a. Uh, it was Westwood, Keimer, Peters that year. And Peters obviously played well for a rookie. So you can't really quibble with any of those in 2016. So it was, um, yeah, I think he, th th that's, a, that's a good example of, I don't, I don't think he lost because of any egregious tactical errors, just a matter of sort of cyclical nature of the Ryder Cup. And the, um, the interesting thing there too is that the U.S., didn't have an overarching strategy period for the longest, longest time. And that evened up the Ryder cup. Now what you've seen when the U S has got all their tactical ducks in a row, like Medina was like the last gasp of making a big mistake on Sunday with not loading the boat, but they did well. Otherwise Hazeltine was basically perfect. Whistling Straits was basically perfect. Combining the U S having their shit together with a home field advantage. I think, I think it's going to be a very long time before Europe wins on U S soil. And it, this that's why Italy is so interesting to me because I think the U.S. is about ready to to win on European soil again. But to your point, Joel, it's like you know the Harrington stuff, the 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 Clark stuff. Th these are things that we can quibble with, and they are mistakes legitimately. But you also have to keep in mind the overarching tidal wave and saying like you know, oh, well, he was killed in the tsunami because he didn't swim leftward at this exact point. It's like, sure, maybe he should have swum leftward, but the, the, he was going to drown anyway, <laughs> you know? So it's that kind of thing. Well, I'm glad you guys took that half-baked idea and thoroughly lit it on fire, and it sounds like it deserves to be. So on that note, uh, boys, appreciate you making time today. Uh, we will come back next week, uh, which I'm sure all of our opinions will change. Uh, but thank you for subscribing, and uh, please return next week. Thank you.